Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I grew up, you know, depression baby parents and all that. And John, the word depression has always been misused by the media and frankly by academics as well. Guess what? The way you just used it is correct. Let's discuss with Ibrahim Rakbari, City Global Head of FX Analysis, and he can weigh in on the global economy like anyone. Ibrahim, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's just start there with the labor market. Some depressing statistics. And I think we go back to the question we keep asking on programs like this. How long will it take to heal? Hi, John. Great to be back. And yes, a key, key question. And let me give you two sides of the spectrum. I think the positive news is going to be, I think continuing claims are going to start peaking quite soon. So despite the numbers being, you know, let's, let's say 25 million or so uh, as of today, I think within, within two, three weeks, I think that number might start to come down. And I think that's obviously a tiny flicker of light at the end of the tunnel. But when it comes to full healing, and, and Chair Powell has touched on it, I think it will be a long time. There's going to be a, a long debate about this, but I think it will be years. So we are looking at, uh, I think, an, an economy that's only going to truly come out of recession, be back to yeah. kind of where it was maybe in, in 2022. Abraham, John from Coventry just emailed in and noted how rude I was to interrupt Lisa there on the recession of 73-74. Ibram, that was a manufacturing goods America, which is gone. This depression is a service sector depression. How does Citigroup Economics feel we recover given so many of these jobs are lower-wage service sector? Yes, so there, there, are, there are a couple of things to note there, but the most important, as you, you already highlighted, it's going to be very, very uneven across sectors. But what is less unusual is that the lowest earners are going to be hardest hit in recession. So even, even in those manufacturing recessions, Maybe the wage levels were somewhat different, but it was still the case that the pain in the labor market would disproportionately fall on low-wage earners. Uh, this time around, I would argue, we actually do have more assistance, faster assistance, larger assistance for some of these than we, we have had in the past. And therefore, I think, it, even though the outlook looks very somber, I think the, the possibility that we can avoid greater damage than we did in the past is probably about the same as it was in in, in previous very deep recessions. So I don't want to be uh, excessively pessimistic at this point, but this is not to dismiss that uh, usually challenging times will lie ahead of us. And they may well have, and this is the big debate, they might well have broader implications for not least politics. Ibrahim, here's what I'm struggling with. People are saying that we're going to see uh, the unemployment rate drop sharply to as much as 25%. Others have even come out with higher estimates. And then it will come back to about 10% by year end. This is the estimate by Goldman Sachs and a number of others. And yet, as we see from the United Kingdom, they say everybody back to work and nobody's coming or very few people are coming because they don't feel confident that they are not going to get sick. How much is that a headwind to these predictions of a a rapidly falling unemployment rate after it hit some of these peaks? Yes, yeah, so I, I, would, I would say that at the margin, I see more downside risk than upside risk relative to these standard forecasts. And that's for some combination of 
reasons that the return to work will be slower, that behavior will be more, more effective than we currently think, but also because we could see setbacks on the health side. That being said, uh, we should keep in mind that this is a quote-unquote artificial recession to start with. So there was an imposed uh, arrest to activity. And what that means is, unlike other recessions, we have some pent-up demand coming out of it. So that's very unusual in historical context. So I think we should be highly confident that we will see pretty sharp drops in unemployment over the next couple of months. Whether that'll take us back to 10% by year end or it'll be somewhat higher, I think that's an open question. But it should still come down pretty sharply. So the momentum will be very clear for unemployment to come down. But there are some very big questions about certain sectors. And to me, the most obvious one is commercial real estate, how that sector will, will recover, for instance. I think there's a huge question mark. And that obviously applies to a number of other sectors that have been hard hit in this recession as well. There's a huge policy debate going on as well, Ibrahim, that I think we should weigh in on too. There is a division between the Federal Reserve Chairman and the President of the United States. In the last 24 hours, Chairman Powell said more fiscal support could be costly but worth it. President Trump then called Speaker Pelosi's stimulus bill dead on arrival. Chairman Powell said negative rates aren't something we're looking at. President Trump said he's a believer in negative rates. We need to reconcile these differences and fast. What do you think the next policy move is? Yes, very, very, very interesting debates. So I think one thing is very clear. We're not going to see negative policy rates in the U.S. for quite a while. I think Chair Powell was very clear. I think the president has limited means to put pressure on him. And I think he is fairly isolated in his views on, on negative rates in the U.S. context right now. So the Fed will continue to use the tools it has and may well reinforce them, but they will be heavily weighted towards, towards asset purchases. But the fiscal equation is also very interesting because we've all kind of got used to the recent U.S. fiscal playbook where bipartisan differences or partisan differences on the fiscal side have been effectively resolved by adopting proposals from both sides of the aisle. So the end result was just more fiscal stimulus. And that's, I think, a, a, an argument in the U.S.'s favor for the recovery. And right now, for the first time in a while, it's possible that we go back to the old model where you need to find an overlap between the two sides. And that, for, for the time being, means somewhat later and somewhat smaller stimulus. So I see a bit, of, a bit of a risk on the fiscal side relative to investor expectations when it comes to so-called phase four, yeah. phase four and beyond. But I do think Ever, we'll get sizable stimulus here still. Everyone, John lays out beautifully all the beliefs and certitudes everyone has. With all your experience, you, Catherine Mann, the Citigroup team, can you, these people actually stay certain in their beliefs with a 22 or a 25 or a 27% unemployment rate? I think you make a very good point, Tom. I think we have to be very humble. These are unprecedented circumstances. We've already seen a number of unprecedented policy responses as well. But, you know, some of the really big questions, they're very hard to resolve. And just to give you a very simple list, is obviously the future of, of the virus and how we're going to address it. It's the future of capitalism coming out of such, a, such an enormous event, the future of globalization, uh, there are any number of sectoral implications. And I think it would be, it would be daft to assume that we, we have uh, a lot of visibility on, on these issues. And that's why we also tell investors, you need to be very agile in these circumstances uh, and uh, be, be ready to change your mind when the facts change. Uh, so we, we certainly look, look at the next few months yeah. with an expectation that a lot of surprises will, will come our way. And hopefully some of them are positive. Ibrahim, fantastic to catch up with you. Ibrahim Rakbari there of City. 
which I'm sure some of you in our audience will remember last November at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum when the former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger told us that the US and China are in the foothills of a cold war. But Tom, it was not too late to do something about it. I wonder if it's too late now. It is such a change uh, with us now, folks, and without question, our conversation of the day on Asia and on China. This is the conversation of surveillance I wish President Trump could listen to this morning is a must read book, a rave review for George Magnus's Red Flags. It is extraordinary. It is short, exceptionally intense. It is a tour de force from the Yale University Press. I'm going to ask a big fancy question, and then I want John to pick it up with a really direct moment that we're in on China, as we talked about before. George Magnus, you write, the Chinese nation's hundred years of shame. How does President Trump affect the shame and the suffering that China faced for those hundred years uh, before the 60s, the 70s, the 80s? Um, Great question to start with, Tom. Um, uh, Well, I mean, what the Chinese call their century of humiliation, uh, which was when foreign, uh, foreign countries basically carved up the country in the 19th century, um, is basically uh, lives on very much in China's consciousness and in its uh, leader's narrative. Um, and they are determined, um, according to uh, what <coughs> Xi Jinping has, has framed as the Chinese dream of the rejuvenate, rejuvenation of the Chinese people, you know, not to allow this to happen ever again and for China to reclaim its role in the world. So what that really means in the context current context of trade war, you know, virus war, goodness knows what we want to kind of call it, is that every time the Chinese feel that the their foreigners, in this case, obviously, the United States or the West, are interfering or pressuring China, um, it, it basically gets their hackles up uh, because they fear and feel that this is kind of history repeating itself, which they refuse to allow to happen. So I'm trying to understand, George, how we should characterise this moment. If a number of months ago, the former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, said that we were in the foothills of a Cold War, are we in one now? Well, I mean, it certainly has all the aura of developing that way, right? We are, you know, the, the relations between senior political leaders are frosty, to say the least, actually. Um, and um, there are, you know, too many areas where there used to be dialogue between, let's say, the United States and China, where it's just basically stopped. Um, uh, the accusations which are flying from one side to the other and back again are, you know, pre- you know, not propitious. I mean, there is still obviously a very high level of economic interdependence between the United States and China and China and other Western countries. But uh, this interdependence is being chipped away at through what uh, a lot of Americans call decoupling. The Chinese call it self-reliance. It's basically they, these are other sides of the same coin. Um, and, um, yeah, we'd have to be very nervous, I think, that this is going to kind of end up with not just a kind of a frosty relationship, but one in which effectively, you know, cooperative relationships can break down completely. 
George, the measures that have been taken so far, such as the U.S. preventing a government pension from investing in Chinese companies, have largely been symbolic and not that effectual when it comes to actual flows of capital. What's the red line from your perspective in which we've really entered into a true escalation that will be very difficult to back down from? Well, this um, movement by uh, the president to stop the public pension fund from uh, purchasing China or to, to warn that investments in Chinese companies you know, could backfire if some of these companies are held to be liable or culpable in the kind of coronavirus pandemic um, is, um, you know, is again, it's a, it's a new twist in what is already quite a, a worrying tale, really, um, because uh, we already have a war, so-called war, going on in terms of trade and tariffs. It's going on in technology. It's going on in other areas that are uh, kind of uh, buried in the kind of mantra of sort of national security. Financial, uh, a financial war or what the Chinese call a smokeless financial war um, would, be, uh, would be a big problem as well because actually here the United States uh, has a huge amount of leverage because the Chinese need capital inflows. They want them. They want uh, international investors, including the United States, to invest in Chinese equity and bond markets. They need the dollars. They need dollar financing. And so, um, in a way, you might say, or some people might say, that the president is simply trying to exercise the leverage that he has uh, because the dollar and the U.S. financial system is so important in the global uh, economy uh, and for China. Um, But in another way, you know, it's one thing to base... My view is it's one thing to say... We don't want you investing in these companies because they're not transparent and they don't meet our accounting standards. It's quite another thing to say, we don't want you investing in these companies because we think they might be culpable in the coronavirus pandemic, because that basically conveys something very, very different to Beijing and obviously ups the ante in terms of, of tension. George, we've got to get you back on because we need a huge discussion on the best way forward to change the behaviour of the Chinese Communist Party. And I know that we have two parties that both want to do that, but I think have two different visions on how to go about doing it, particularly in the United States. George Magnus there of the University of Oxford. This is going to be a critical issue. We've said it so many times on this programme. Let me ask a fancy question, John. I think it's really important to shift to the fiscal debate now. We can do that with Julia Coronado, macroeconomic policy. Uh, she's been wonderful, not only on the monetary theory that's out there and, and, and such, but, but also the shift from monetary over to the other areas. Julia, the arch theory here, which many bring up, Dr. Posen, I believe, brought it up with uh, Chairman Powell yesterday, is from Olivier Blanchard and Lawrence Summers. And that is a strange word, hysteresis which is about if you're out of a job, you stay out of a job, it's even harder to get back in. What's the hysteresis meter on the United States of America right now? This is a very dangerous territory we're in. Um, and there's, this is exactly why Powell came out and sort of issued his call to arms for fiscal policymakers. Um, to have this many millions and millions of people, eight weeks of jobless claims that busted through multiple times any prior record in the deepest recessions we've ever seen. We cannot take this lightly. We cannot assume this will all just snap back to normal. 
Julia, I'm struck by a statistical aberration in the data, and not sorry to get geeky, but I think this is important to really gauge whether people are actually receiving unemployment benefits. We talk about 36.5 million people who have filed initial jobless claims, and yet the continuing claims is so far below that. It came in far yeah. below where people expected. This is the number of people actually receiving benefits. Yeah. What does this mean? Yeah. Does it mean that basically the gears in states and municipalities are not moving quickly enough to get money to people who are out of work? Yeah, exactly. So we've seen, we know that many, many states are having problems processing these claims. So even if you can file an initial claim, um, even in states like New York, um, people have been waiting to, be, to receive benefits for weeks. People have filed six, eight weeks ago and still aren't receiving benefits. So the benefit program was well-designed. It was fairly generous, um, but we just don't have the technology in place to get the money to people. Julie, let's talk about the cure and how long it takes to heal. Time alone is not enough. What do we need to do? We need to bridge this gap. And what's, what Powell's message was is that this gap is going to be longer than we thought. It's this narrative about opening the economy up is a false narrative. Um, as long as we have a rampant disease, people aren't going to go back out and go about business as normal, and businesses will still be struggling to make ends meet. So this is about getting us through this public health crisis that looks like it's going to be a matter of many months, not just two or three months. And so we need to get money to people, businesses, and consumers so that they can pay their rent, so that they don't default, so that we don't see a wave of business failures, which would start a snowball effect of more job losses and more loss of confidence. So time is really of the essence here. Julia, how do you establish what is temporary just in terms of damage and what might be more permanent? Well, I still think we're in a phase where a lot of this could be temporary. Uh, you know, the, the relationships between employers and their workers hasn't been disrupted for that long. Um, so it is, but we are seeing what's troubling, and I think what Powell is hearing from his business contacts is that more businesses are saying, you know, no thanks to these loan programs. Um, I'm just going to hunker down and actually permanently reduce my operations. And that's exactly the transition we don't want businesses to make. So in that first wave, and we saw that in the employment report, right, the vast majority of people are still characterized as on temporary layoffs, um, but those can become permanent very quickly. Uh, so we don't know. There's not a lot of precision in this, um, but we still have time. Like we're still in a good spot. <clears throat> excuse me, where we could we could pull this off. We could pull this off. When you look at what's being proposed in Washington, and you look at the timeline that's getting stretched out, as an increasing number of lawmakers say, we need to wait. When is the latest that they can pass something in order to rescue this market and prevent us from entering a depression? We've got weeks, not months, to do this. So if you think about one example is state and local governments who are seeing budget crises. Um, their budget year typically ends in June. Um, so they're having to make budgets for next fiscal year, which starts in July. So if they don't have money to plug that hole, many of them have balanced budget requirements. They have to lay off staff and cut back services. That's exactly the kind of second round effect we want to avoid. So we have June to get money to state right. and local governments so that they don't go into a round of permanent layoffs. Uh, Julia, the, the key distinction here 
is it in America we don't want to provide direct aid to individuals, we don't trust them, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to get into the cultural debate, folks, but the fact is we don't. And in Europe, they provide direct subsidies so people can pay their rent, as you, expa- as you explained, to you know help businesses and all that. I get that theory. Do you see, do you have any optimism that we can shift the ethos in America to a more European direct benefit tone? I think so. I mean, we we are seeing actually, although the administration hasn't gotten on board, we're starting to see at least some bipartisan support for for stronger, more lasting income support to get us through this. Um, It's early days. We need more of it. But um, I think it's quite possible because these are their voters. Um, It should follow that if there is a pandemic, this is nobody's fault uh, to actually get money to people so that they don't default or go hungry, uh, lose their homes. This is sort of pretty easy, low-hanging fruit for most politicians of either party. So I'm optimistic we can start to see that gel as the urgency starts to the message of urgency gets received by the policymakers. Let's hope so. Julia, fantastic to catch up with you. Julia Coronado there of Macroeconomic Policy. Here from our surveillance Central Park office, I can look over to Englewood, <laughs> New Jersey, and see brilliant math students all lined up on the Palisades gazing out. And if they're smart enough, they'll be lucky enough to go to Brown University in Providence or north to a smaller city of Boston and Cambridge to Harvard and do better than good at economics. And they can be like Randall Krosner, the former governor of the Federal Reserve System and now, of course, a force at the Booth School in Chicago. We're thrilled that Governor Krosner could join us with all this terrific news flow that we have. Randy, the the the, the, the path of the 10-year yield that we've seen, and as John Taylor of Stanford uh, would call it, the great moderation that we have seen and we had for a long time, I guess, some stability and volatility. Is the path of the 10-year yield following economic things that are out there or are our economic, our investment, our finance stuff following the 10-year yield? Which is it? Ah. It's a very interesting way to put it. I think it's ref, uh, reflecting uh, the uh, the economic fundamentals and the forces that are there, but it does have a broader psychological impact that sort of is a feedback mechanism. Yeah. Which is sort of what, what you're getting, getting on. I think it's a very interesting way of putting it. So I think it makes a lot of sense that the, the 10-year yield has come down so much. We're clearly in a very low inflation environment. Uh, we're clearly, uh, no one is worried that, at least in the short to intermediate run, that we're going to have have inflation. I mean, some people have been concerned about the, uh, the increase in the Fed's balance sheet, but they've been concerned when I was there at you know, the global financial crisis that we would have this high inflation over the next decade. We didn't have that. I don't see that, that coming now. But I also think it's reflecting a, um, you know, that low yield is also telling us something about the uncertainty that people have, the concerns that uh, that people have about uh, about right. the economic situation we're in. Uh, I'm going to be rude here, Paul, and jump in on this question because <laughs> I, I don't want to go, you know, uh, uh, the mental block. The wonderful professor at New York University has done great, great research on recurrence equations and feedback loops. Professor Krosner, real simple 
can economists and even well-meaning chairmen of the Federal Reserve be so presumptive as to believe they can break the feedback loops? That's also another very interesting question because it's my last uh, one the, for the quarter. Go with it. The, no, 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 no. I'm sure there are more more coming. The um, because you, it's a very um, challenging game when you're um, uh, have a, um, uh, a megaphone like a Fed chairman because you want to be realistic, like um, the chairman was yesterday. That you know there are going to be a lot of challenges ahead. Don't think that this is just you know we turn the lights off, we're going to turn the lights back back on yeah. again. But you also don't want to scare people because that can make it more difficult to have the recovery. And so you try to um, talk in a way that is realistic but gets to the direction that you want. It's very, very difficult. Look what happened to Alan Greenspan when he was trying to be realistic, that he saw some irrational exuberance, and the stock market fell uh, by a very significant amount. It's really something. Paul, I was rude there. Roman Fridman is the giant at New York University who's really studied the recurrence equations, the feedback loops, the the redos that happen behaviorally within an economic system. (laughs) Paul? So, Professor, we heard from uh, Fed Chairman Powell yesterday. He seemed to poo-poo negative interest rates. Give us your thoughts about how you think the Fed thinks about kind of negative interest interest rates as a as a policy matter. So I think it's um, it's not part of their DNA. They really don't want to go there. But certainly in a, in an environment where we're in, you'd never want to say never about anything. If we were to get into a deflationary situation and sort of the price level is falling by, let's say two percent per year, if they refuse to go below zero. That would mean that real interest rates would be 2%, and that would be quite high relative to what they've been over the last decade. That would mean tight monetary policy. So they would have to, in extreme circumstances, I think, reconsider that. But part of the – I don't think it was an accident that the chairman talked about his reluctance to go negative and talked about the fiscal authorities doing more. Because if the fiscal authorities do more and do the right things, um, then he feels that – they're not going to be put in that situation of uh, a significant deflation where they might have to consider that. So as we think about their policy going forward here, is it is it really – are they trying to is, – is Fed Chairman Powell and the rest of the Federal Reserve really trying to put some pressure on Congress to step up and do even more from a fiscal stimulus perspective? Well, I think they worry that um, – I mean, I think they're they're quite delighted that we were able to get bipartisan support for these very large spending bills and get that through very quickly. I don't think people would have anticipated that. I think it's now clear that there's a lot more partisan wrangling that's going on that's going to slow down the next steps. And and I think um, Fed Chair uh, Powell really doesn't want the burden to be put onto the Fed. You know, like if, if everybody else can't act, well, then the Fed will take care of it. The Fed can't cure the virus. The Fed can't repair broken supply chains. They can't get people comfortable with going out to, uh, to yeah. consume. Other things have to happen. And, and that's effect that, you know, implicitly that was the message. Don't put all the burden on us. Um, it's got to be a shared yeah. burden. Randall Crosner with us, folks, uh, former governor of the Federal Reserve System at the Booth School of Chicago and, of course, with prodigious math uh, capabilities. And Randy- I was born in Englewood, New Jersey. I know. That's what it is. I mean, I can see it over there. 
I, I see all sorts of square roots floating in the atmosphere over Anglewood, New Jersey uh, right now. Professor Krosner, I, I, let me ask you a mathy question about a non-mathy concept. And this comes from the economic lightweight Olivier Blanchard of MIT and a guy named Summers from Harvard as well. Folks, I'm kidding here in that these are all concept ideas that are particularly perceived by the media as concept ideas. And Professor Krosner knows underlying Blanchard and Summers' work on hysteresis is prodigious math abilities. What's the math of our unemployment at 25%, Professor? Um, That's a big number. (laughs) That's good. You get an A A at Englewood for that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but the the challenge is when you get to, to numbers like this and this persists, there's a scarring that goes on. That's that sort of hysteresis is sort of a fancy way of just saying that uh, this is not something that's temporary but has long legs. There's a scarring that, that happens. It's not just, oh, someone's thrown out of work and 25% of the population's out of work, and then they just find a job again. It makes it more, very, very difficult when people are out of work for a long time to be able to get back into the labor force. When you have that many people out, that means that people need dramatically different kinds of skills, and it's very tough to get them reskilled so so quickly. And it makes it very difficult when you have those high unemployment rates to be able to move, move them down. Okay. And that's why I think it's very important that policy think about the transition, rather than trying to think about, well, can we just get back to February? February is gone. The meteor is hit. The, uh, the dinosaurs have been uh, been made extinct, right? and to, there's no way we're going to bring them back. Okay, but why can't we be Germany? I mean, this is a really important question, folks, in terms of retraining. The Germans own the high ground on this. Professor Krosner, why can't we retrain? And, and frankly, Chicago in the Midwest is like, would be the nexus of this. So I think... Uh, uh, I think there are two things. One is that there is this long history of apprenticeship systems in uh, in Germany, and so uh, people build I up agree. skills, a broad a broad skill set. We don't have that in the U.S. I, and also, yeah. there's a cult a cult, there's a cultural piece to it. In Germany, when people grow up together, one person goes on to become CEO of a company, another person becomes the um, uh, someone who works in um, in metalwork and becomes a welder. They can they generally tend to to stay friends and stay in the same social circles. Yep. In the U.S., we don't have that, and so I think yep. it's a combination of a cultural thing and these <sighs> these structures, these apprenticeship structures. What you just heard there, folks, of Randall Krosner, tattoo it to your brain on Germany. And I'm pleased to say <laughs> Richard Clareto, the vice chairman, is expert on this, as is Adam Posen, who asked uh, Chairman Powell the questions yesterday. Randy, that was so valuable, so brilliant. Thank you so much. He is at the Booth School of Chicago, Randall Krosner as well. Wide-ranging discussion here. On nursing, on the doctors, they leave the hospital and the idea of what that means when there is a pandemic. Here is Jason Farley of Johns Hopkins University. Let's listen. Well, I think you're seeing professionals who, you know, as you would see a soldier at war who can be relaxed in between the battles, uh, you can see healthcare workers relaxed in between those battles. Um, I don't think the public should take a sense of, you know, uh, lack of urgency in our response, and I, by that urgency, I mean uh, continuing to be safer at home, continuing to social distance, physical distance. Uh, by no yeah. means are we out of this war. 
Beautifully said. So with that, there's this huge tension between lockdown stay at home, the Wisconsin legislation that we've seen in the last uh, 24 hours. How do you perceive the gray area between a strict lockdown, stay at home, and getting back to normal? Well, I think you characterized it perfectly. It's this sense of gray in which, um, you know, everyone is opening up in slightly different ways across the country, uh, across the world. Um, and we really need to pay very close attention and be vigilant to how that opening up and how our change in our behavior, how our, you know, quite frankly, our, our decrease in social and physical distancing from one another, a return to work, is going to impact new cases. We, we anticipate that it will impact new cases, and yet there are some painful decisions that have to be made in, as you've mentioned multiple times, the recession, preventing depression uh, economically and, and in many cases, um, you know, just saving businesses. So it, it is a delicate balance between being able to open up, expand the economic environment while, you know, also being vigilant to prevent ongoing transmission. Can we guesstimate, Jason Farley, how many people so far have had COVID and how many of those people are immune? So the immune question is a very hard one at this point. We are doing, you know, investigators across the world are really struggling with, uh, you know, coming to grips with whether or not immunity will occur as a result of infection. For some people, we, we believe that it will, but we are seeing cases of relapse, reinfection, if you will. And so what's critical to understand is in these patients who have, you know, a, a supposed relapse, were they truly tested negative and repeatedly negative for the virus and, and basically became what we would call convalescent, so they recovered, and we, we can detect antibodies in those circumstances. And then we follow those people over time to see if reinfection occurs in those circumstances. We're actually launching a study in June to do exactly that at Johns Hopkins, to really follow people longitudinally for at least 12 months in a cohort of patients uh, to see if what the prevalence, what the incidence of the virus is in this 12-month period, particularly if we begin to experience a second or, you know, forbid, you know, um, a third wave of this infection. And so we're, we're really trying to be vigilant in our understanding of the potential for reinfection, the level of immunity that occurs, and what that ultimately helps us to understand uh, about the potential for this growing concern of a second wave. Are countries working together uh, to try and figure this out, or is it everyone for themselves? I think m much of the global community is working together. Unfortunately, I, I do believe that, you know, from a U.S. perspective, uh, we have opted out of that global community in many ways. Uh, not only the rhetoric from the White House uh, about multiple uh, re responses from other countries, specifically, uh, of course, the focus on China, uh, but also uh, the global vaccine initiative. Uh, the U.S. has decided that we're going to go it alone uh, and not participate in several of the global vaccine initiatives, which um, is, is very nearsighted on our part. Um, I do believe you know, we have our first trial starting here in the U.S. very soon, uh, some ongoing trials, but John Hopkins specifically uh, in June, so in a few weeks. We'll have our first vaccine trials going. And in addition, um, you know, multiple different vaccine candidates. So it's not just one vaccine. 
um, while the rest of the world uh, is is moving ahead. And we know that in Oxford and other uh, locations around the world, we have seen you know the vaccine initiatives really take off. So I, I think we are being nearsighted in the U.S. response and not participating in global efforts. Jason Farley, Johns Hopkins University Nursing. Just a very smart, holistic conversation there, folks, on the trends uh, right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.